number of uh, prominent Anglicans, I think, were meeting together in, was it Canterbury, uh, to discuss the future of uh, the Anglican Church. Now, um, this meeting was, I suppose you could say, it was a bit more newsworthy than we might have imagined. You can see why it was like that. Like the news, the media outlets could smell a story here. And they knew that there were problems in the church. The question hanging over the Archbishop of Canterbury and all these big senior Anglicans was, well, hang on, see this week, is there going to be a split in the church? You know, is there going to be a division? Is there going to be a schism here? You know, the question that people were wondering, see the more conservative evangelical wing of the Anglican Church, is it? Is this going to be the point that they decide, right, we're going to move away? Was there going to be this big division in the church? It was a story. It was a story because there was problems. Problems in the church. Now, tonight, what we do is we're going to look at First Timothy, the short section in First Timothy, and what we see is the same topic here. Like what Paul is doing in these short verses, he's dealing with problems in the church. And I, I want you to hear this first thing I'll say to you. It might not seem like it's a, a riveting topic for your Sunday night. Problems in the church. I need you to understand right now that it's important. I firmly believe that every single one of us, at some point in our lives, we are going to get into a church, be in a church that has serious problems going on in it. And we need to, as Christians, work out, well, hang on, biblically, how do we respond to that? Like, what do we do as Christians? You know, if, you know, if we're not in leadership, is it okay for us just to sit back and chill out and not worry about it? And if we have to do something, what is it that God wants us to do if we're in a church that has serious problems going on? So this, this is important. It is with an acknowledgement that this subject is crucial to you, to all of us, that we have to now turn to. First Timothy. Before we do that, let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, we hear even in the news tonight that uh, in elsewhere in London there are there's overcrowding as uh, people go to a festival of, of lights, and yet we're in here, and we are few as we turn and look to the light of the world. And we are asking that though we be just a few people in here, we pray that you would grant us illumination to understand Scripture, to hear the voice of Almighty God, to know how we should respond when there are issues in churches. Lord, would you be gracious to us tonight, though we don't deserve it. Would you minister to us in Christ, we pray. Amen. Okay, turn back, please, to First Timothy. Have that section of scripture in front of you. <coughs> so, from three to seven, chapter one, from three to seven, I think it is. Right, conventional setup of the sermon: three headings. 
first heading that we think about here are, is quite simply the problems of the church. So let's think about that, first of all, the problems of the church. What do we learn here from God? Right, were you here last week? Most of you, I think, were here last week. If you, if you were here, you'll remember what it is that we're dealing with in this section of Scripture. This is a letter. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy. Somebody, do you remember somebody he views as his dear child in the faith? Remember that true son in the faith? Somebody for whom he desires grace, mercy, and peace. That's the section. That's what we've got. Now, this portion of scripture tonight. What is it? Well, here we're actually seeing the reason that Paul is writing to Timothy. So in the first section, we saw who he's writing to. This section, we're seeing why Paul's got his pen out, if you like, and put pen to paper. Now, what's he doing? Why is he writing to Timothy? Well, there's, there's a real problem going on in Timothy's, Timothy's church. I mean, it is a real problem. Like, Timothy is in a place called Ephesus, and things in that church are going badly, man. Like, things are going pear-shaped in Ephesus. So what does Paul do? He, he thinks, right, I need to write to this young man, and I need to give him some advice for this. Now, here's the thing. What, what we'll see here is Paul kind of identify that there are two main problems in the church in Ephesus. I want to say this to you. See, the two problems that Paul's going to identify here are the two problems that you, you need to be on the lookout for in the church that you attend, whether it be this one or another church. The two problems that Paul identifies here, these are the two problems you as a Christian need to worry about. Okay, so what are these two problems? Okay, first one is that there was wrong teaching in the church in Ephesus. There was wrong teaching. Right. In this section, Paul sort of portrays that there was this group of guys. We don't really know how many guys, but there was a group of guys, and they were in the church, involved in a lot of the teaching of the church, and they were teaching some pretty far out and uh, crazy things. Okay, now we get an insight into what they were teaching. If you look at it in verse 4. So what were these? Okay, the stuff's weird, but what was it? Look at it in verse 4. We get an idea of the specifics of the teaching. It says that they were teaching myths and, what's the other one? Myths and endless genealogies. What does that mean? What does it mean if they're teaching myths? Well, at this point in the ancient world, in this part of the world, there was a, a, a book doing the rounds called the Book of Jubilees. don't know if you've heard of it or not, the Book of Jubilees. Laura's nodding her head. Laura's read the Book of Jubilees, perhaps. Well, the book of Jubilees was nonsense. Okay. The book of Jubilees, it retold the Old Testament, or parts of the Old Testament. And what it did was sort of add into the, the Old Testament lots of mythical, crazy ideas. And also lots of weird, sort of fanciful interpretations of the biblical stories. Now that there, I mean, it's madness. But that is the sort of thing that these guys are actually teaching in the church of Ephesus, all right? So you've got them teaching myths. What's the other thing? 
endless genealogies. Quite a few of you were here in the church when we went through Genesis, or the first half of Genesis. Do you remember the list of names in Genesis? Well, what seems to be occurring here is that these false teachers are spending like the bulk of their teaching time in those list of names, in the genealogies. And what they're doing is they're taking out the names and they're playing with the names and they're making sort of great grand speculations about the future based on these genealogies. Do you see, isn't it weird? Isn't it odd? That's what's happening here. Now, this is not the main point of application. But I do want you to think about this. What do those two things have in common? Myths, endless genealogies. They're Bible-based. Retelling the story of the Old Testament. Going into these genealogies. They're Bible-based. Like, isn't there a lesson for us in that? What was it that Bob Dylan said about Satan in one of his songs? He said, The enemy that I see He wears a cloak of decency. And isn't that the case when it comes to false teaching? Like, false teaching doesn't come in to the life of the church to say, I'm false teaching! It doesn't come in and say, what I'm about to say is unbiblical. Do you see, isn't that the case? It claims biblical authority. Like, think of examples. What about the way that the prosperity gospel message is infiltrating many Pentecostal churches today, even in London? What about Mormonism? What about Jehovah's Witnesses? Do you see the common ground? They all claim to be based on the Bible. Do you see the message for us? Just because a guy might stand in front of people with what seems to be a Bible in his hand does not mean that he is speaking and preaching biblical truth. Okay? So we see something about the specifics of this teaching. I think we see something a bit more fundamental about the teaching at the end of verse 3. So what does... Right, there's myths and genealogies, but how does Paul class this uh, uh, teaching here? Do you see what he calls it? The end of verse 3. Just give you a second. The end of verse 3, he calls it false doctrines. You know what ministers like to do? You know how, you know how ministers always seem to make up words when they're preaching? You notice that? Uh, you know, you're sitting in the pulpit and you're like, oh, hang on a second, that's not a word. But you know, the minister's maybe in full flow and it's like, well, okay, so you make up words, you know? That seems to be what Paul's doing there. Like, it honestly does seem to be the case that he has made up this word. Now, the, essence of the word isn't false doctrines. The essence of the word is actually different doctrines. So do you see what Paul's saying? He's chastising these guys, these false teachers. Why? Because they are preaching a message that is different to his. They are preaching a message that is different in some ways to what would become New Testament doctrine. Now wait a minute, do you see? The lesson for you and I. 
You and I have got to be constantly on the lookout as Christians for any doctrine that might be different to what we've got in Scripture. Like that's our job as Christians. You know, we're on the lookout in the life of the church for, for doctrine that might be difficult to, to what's in our Bibles, what's in Scripture. I wonder, would you agree with me that in this sense we are very, very difficult, different to the world? I mean, how is it in society? How is it in culture? How is it in music? How is it at work in art? What does everybody want? They want to be innovators. They want to do and say something new. Isn't that what society wants? Now here's the thing. Should that be the case in here? Never. Do you understand that? Absolutely not. Like we do not want in this place new truth. What do we want? We want new light on old truth. You see this place in here? You see the church of Jesus Christ? This is not a mailpot of new ideas. It absolutely is not that at all. It must be a bastion of the old, old story. And if that is not the case, what happens? There will be problems. So are you with me so far? So we're we're thinking about problems. Paul's spelling out the problems in Ephesus. We're thinking, right, these problems, the same problems we got to worry about. What did he say was the first main problem? He said, come on, there's wrong teaching here. Different doctrine going on. There's another thing that Paul says here. He says there's wrong teaching. Get this though. There was also wrong teachers. Wrong teachers. I remember a guy, um, this was when I was in secondary school, in Inverness, in Scotland. And we had a teacher, I'm never going to forget this guy at all, um, a, a good bloke, you know? Like a, a guy who treated his pupils with a bit of respect, one of the few teachers that you would actually have a bit of mutual respect for, you know, as a, a youngster. He was a good teacher. thing is, problem is not so much I suppose that he had a drinking habit the problem was that he had a drinking habit that was out of control and he was despite being a a, a great bloke he was a classic case of a man who should not have been in his role Classic case of someone who should not have been in that position at that time. And it's this sort of gross unsuitability for a role that Paul is is really uh, underlining here. See, because towards the end of the section, Paul says, not only is the teaching in Ephesus, it's, it's, it's out there, it's wild, but he's saying that the teachers themselves... The actual guys who are getting up and speaking, that those guys themselves, they're wild as well. Look at what he says. Do you notice this? Like, what is it that makes these guys unsuitable? Look at verse 6. They're morally unsuitable to be teachers, aren't they? 
You've got them wandering away from, what is it, a pure heart and a sincere faith. Do you see that? I mean, isn't it remarkable? In the early years of the church of Ephesus, that you've got guys who are teaching in that church who are absolutely morally corrupt blokes here. But he also says that these guys were intellectually unsuitable as well. Not so much that he's saying that these guys were stupid, but he's saying that these men were, they were ill-equipped, ill-educated. Look at, look at, at verse 7. This is, this is a cutting statement if ever there was one. Look at verse 7. You know, look what he says. What does he say? They don't know what they are talking about. They do not know what they're talking about. Now, I think I don't need to expand on the lesson that's there. Like problems start in churches if unsuitable people are given a platform to, to teach. That's a, that's a recipe for disaster. But I do think we need to practically just think about that for a second. Look, a couple of things about that. One, doesn't that mean that you and I should value theological education more than we do? I mean, think about Paul here. He is rallying against these men because they don't know what they're talking about. I mean, shouldn't it be the case that that we value and pray, pray for theological education? What do we want in the church? We want men who, who do know their maybe their languages, maybe their doctrine to know it well. But another thing, it also means that you should choose your next church carefully. I said this a few weeks ago before Christmas, and I'll say it again probably 200 times. There's not many here tonight. But I can almost guarantee you this. Five years from now, most of you won't be here that you move on. You go somewhere else in the world that your job takes you away or a relationship takes you away. Now, that means that you inevitably, hopefully, will have to choose, wherever you end up, you will have to choose another church. And I urge you to do that carefully. Think about what you're learning here. Think about the lesson here. When you do that, you have to think about who it is that's involved in the teaching and the leadership of that church. Is it, is it men like this? I mean, what will the, look for it. What will the, what are the elders like in that church? Are they men who are morally intellectually suitable for teaching in the church because one thing you can be guaranteed if not is what you're seeing here that there will be guaranteed problems in that congregation in that church so we see problems in the church okay Another thing we need to think about is the response of the church the response of the church <coughs> excuse me I have got friends who are ministers, uh, ministers in a different uh, denomination north of the border. A couple of guys that I know quite well. Now these guys, uh, they speak to each other, they speak to, to me, and they are dismayed. And I remember what I said, I said another denomination. 
but they're dismayed about the direction of that church. Like they're, they're speaking to each other, they're speaking to me about the way that that church is seemingly just a thirsty to go away from the gospel, moving away from scriptural truth as fast as it can. They're ministers in that denomination. And so they're on the phone, they're speaking to each other, they're speaking to other people, and they're saying, what do we do? You know, imagine you've got care, pastoral care for a congregation, and there's so many things to think about. What do they do? Their denomination is, is moving away fast. Well, get this, that's what Paul deals with here. So, here's the thing. What about for you? Forget my friends who are ministers. What about you? Let's say in the future, let's say in five years' time, you find yourself in a church, whether it be this church or another church, where there's serious doctrinal and personnel problems. What are you going to do about it? I think we see a few things here. One, there should be concern. That's the first thing, there should be concern. I'll give you a little New Testament quiz, okay? So... Fingers in the buzzers or whatever. In fact, you don't actually have to shout out if you know the answer to this question, but at least think about it, please. What's missing from what you've got in front of you? First Timothy 1. What's missing? What do you not have there that you would expect to find in the portion of Scripture that we read? There's no thanksgiving. Think about it. You know, Paul writes a letter. What does he begin it with? Inevitably, what does he begin it with? Like, even if he's writing to a person or he's writing to a church, what does he do? First thing that he does, he always says, we're thanking God for you. We're thanking God for your faith. We're thanking God for your works. We're thanking God for your witness. And it isn't there. Now, why is that? Do you see why it's not there? It's because there's false teaching in the church. Like Paul is, Paul is burdened with this. Paul's, Paul's anxious about a situation. So what does he do? He says, forget him. He says, forget all the pleasant trees, Timothy. Come on, let's shelve that. Come on, there's the gospel's at stake here. Let's get to this issue. He's concerned. Now, there's no thanksgiving. What is there? What does he have in verse 3? How does he begin this section? You've got to think about this. What does this mean when Paul says, as I urged you, when I went into Macedonia. What does that mean? Do you see what it means? It means that Paul has been so utterly, you know, consumed and concerned about the problems in the church that not only in Macedonia, as he's taken sort of Timothy aside and says, right, we've got to do something about this, Timothy. Not only has he done this, what's he doing now? He's right into him. He's spoken to him. Now he's reiterating all of this. He says, right, okay, let's put it down in pen. Timothy, I spoke to you before. I'm telling you again. Come on, there's false teaching in the church. Are you thinking about the lesson here? I mean, are you thinking what that teaches you? It means that surely as Christians, if there is false teaching, we can't be relaxed about that. We can't just, you know, chill out and be apathetic. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is concerned when we're talking about false teaching and false doctrine here. 
I mean, you and I, if we hear this sort of stuff, whether it be in our church or another church, I mean, shouldn't we be grieved? I mean, that's sending people to hell. We should be, Paul was, we should be concerned. So, there should be concern. I've got to be careful here. Second one, I'm going to put brackets in this one, okay? There should sometimes be commitment. Sometimes, if we see problems in a church, there should sometimes be commitment. What do I mean by that? Well, would you do, what do you think, what do you think it is that Paul commands Timothy to do? Like there's problems, Paul's obviously concerned. What does he tell him to do? Look at verse 3. Please look at verse 3. What does he command him to do? And don't go, don't run ahead with it. Break it up. He says, Timothy, stay there. ESV is brilliant. Here, the ESV, I think, has Timothy remain in Ephesus. I think that's remarkable, isn't it? What would you expect a Christian teacher to say? There's false teaching, Paul, in uh, Ephesus. What would you expect Paul to say? There's what? There's false teaching in the church. Get out of there, man. Run for the hills. You know, flee from the false teaching. And what does Paul say? He doesn't say that. He says, actually, Timothy, you stay put, man. You remain. Now, wait a minute. Why would anyone advise somebody to stay? Well, I think we, we, we get the answer here. Look what Paul says. He says, certain men are teaching false doctrine. So do you see what that means? Certain men. It means that not everyone was teaching the false doctrine. I mean, Timothy, for one, was still preaching in Ephesus. He's still preaching the gospel. It's only certain guys that were preaching nonsense. Do you see what that means? It means that the, the whole church was not given over to this false nonsense. Do you see what I mean? It means that the whole of Ephesus congregation wasn't given over, wasn't immersed in this false doctrine. So Paul can, can quite happily then say, okay, you stay. And what do you do, Timothy? You fight, man. You fight for the gospel. Now we've got to be all careful when we apply that. I want to just say what that doesn't mean there. What that does not give us license to do. Would you think about my friends in Scotland for a second? I mean, what we're seeing there does not mean for a second that if we are in a church that is entirely given over to false teaching and has moved away from the gospel, this does not mean that we stay in that church. It does not mean that we join in with this quite happily. Can I say to you, if the gospel goes, you go. You know, if a church is comprehensively given over, if all the teachers are embracing a false gospel, come on. But I think what we do learn here is that sometimes, especially if you're in church leadership, 
And especially if the, the, the false teaching has only begun to show itself, sometimes it is appropriate for Christians to stay in that congregation and to fight with all their strength for a return to the good news of salvation. So there should be concern, right? If there's a problem in the church, there's, there's got to be concern. There should sometimes be commitment. And the third one, the last one of these, is that there should be confrontation. In a previous church that I was in, <coughs> I encountered the fieriest woman on this planet. Okay? Uh, you get no more information than that. But you know uh, the sort of person that, that we're talking about, don't you? Um, a person who, uh, who... A person who's itching for a fight in the church, you know? Uh, maybe listening to the sermon. Uh, listening to see if there's anything that they disagree with, you know? At the edge of their seat type stuff. Can I disagree with that? Can I try? Or a person who maybe isn't involved in the service of the church, but a person who is quite happy to pick holes in other people's service in the life of the church. You know, someone just itching for a fight. Now, when I say here that if there's a problem in the church that there needs to be confrontation, <laughs> is that what I mean? I do not mean that. Okay, not at all. What do I mean? Well, look at this. What is it that Paul instructs Timothy to do? Look at verse 3. We've said, he said, Timothy, you stay put. But what's he to do? Timothy, Timothy, stay put so that, what's the next bit? You may command certain men not to yeah. I love it because the language that Paul uses is just like really, really intense and strong. So he's saying to Timothy, not just, okay, stay put and see how things go. He's not saying that. He's saying, Timothy, you stay and you go to those. And you absolutely forbid them from teaching that nonsense. You forbid it. You command them to stop with this false doctrine. Now you think about it. What does that mean? Should we encounter problems in the church? What do we do? Do we sit back and twiddle our thumbs? Would you do that? Is that how you would hope somebody else would come in and deal with it? Would you just sit back and relax if the gospel was absent? Friends, what do we do? We take action. Now, how do we do that? Well, think about it. Timothy is a leader in that church. And you are in a Presbyterian church. What would you do? You must go to your elders. And you must absolutely implore them to confront the situation. Do you see it? You go to the elders. If they don't do anything, you go to the presbytery. But you go to them and you implore them to nip the false teaching in the bud, to stop it, stamp it out. But what we're learning here is that in the future, if you are in a church again, if it is this one or another one, what happens? What, what, what do you want to see? There should be concern in your very heart and soul for that. That sometimes you should be committed to the congregation, that you try and see it stamped out, and that you want to see 
You want to see the elders, you want to see the church leadership, you want to implore the church leadership to forbid ministers for ever preaching anything that is not based on the cross and what Christ has done for us. I just want, want to close with this. I want to end with this. Third thing, the goal of the church. So we've seen the, the problems, we've seen the response, just the goal of the church. Um, your Kirk session has a plan. Or rather, uh, the Kirk session LCPC, we have a plan to have a plan. That's very Presbyterian of us, isn't it? We'll have a committee to establish whether we need a plan. No, we have a plan to have a plan. Uh, so the hope is that this term, uh, that the Kirk session will be meeting more regularly for prayer, but also to assess every aspect of church life. And the hope with that is that we are going to present to you as a congregation a vision of where in God's will we think we should be headed as a congregation in the next three to five years. That's the hope. And I would say, just as a tangent, that's a matter for prayer. Now, if we, you were to sum, if we were to sum up the hope uh, of the Kirk session for LCPC with this whole thing, whole idea of the vision, what do we want to see? If we were to sum up one word, it would be love. That we hope to see a greater love in this congregation. What do you think? Do you think, oh, these elders have gone a wee bit soft. You know, they don't make elders like they used to do. Is that what you're thinking? Maybe. But it is. It is what Paul is focused on here. Now, what he does is he contrasts the results of this false teaching in Ephesus with the results, the product that should come out of the church if it's focused on the gospel. So he's contrasting the results of these things. So what does he say? Do you, do you notice it? <coughs> in verse 6, what comes out of the false teaching? He says, nothing comes out of the false teaching. He says, if there's false teaching, false doctrine in the church, what you get is speculation. Then he says, what you get is meaningless talk. So what he's saying is that if the gospel is not there, the church, it produces emptiness. It produces vanity. It produces nothing at all. But what does he say should be produced? Do you see it? Look. Verse 5, the goal. The goal of the commands. The goal is love. So what do you think? Do you think Paul's gone a bit soft? Do you think this is just a fluffy idea? All we need is love. Is that, is that what you think Paul's getting at there? Well, no, what we have to understand is that that early church, the early church, was much more focused on the greatest commandment than perhaps we are. What's the greatest commandment? What did Jesus tell his church was the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. 
the church should produce love. Now, the elders here, the Kirk Session, like we can and we probably will change things in the life of the church. And, like we can change the 20s and 30s meeting. And we can change the teaching here. We can change the house group Bible studies. We can change the ladies group. We can change anything. What can we not do? We cannot artificially create a deeper love in this congregation. It doesn't work like that. But praise God... What happens here is that Paul tells us exactly what will produce greater love at LCPC. And I'm going to end with this. Okay, so where does love come from? You ready? Where is love going to come from? Ready for this? What does he say in verse 5? It comes from a pure heart. See what that means? It means that you are going to love each other more. It means you are going to love God more if what happens if you come to Christ for forgiveness, but if you on a daily basis in contrition are coming to God in prayer and you are pleading Him over your sin and you're asking for forgiveness, washing your feet every day. Could you do that? What else does He say? Love comes from a good conscience. I mean, do you see what that means? It means that you are going to love each other more. You're going to love God more. If in all good conscience you are fighting in the Holy Spirit for purity in your life just now, is that true of you? Are you fighting for purity and holiness? Taking steps for that? And then the last one. Paul says love comes from a sincere faith. See what that says? There's going to be less bitterness in here. There is going to be, there's going to be less seeing the flaws in other people. There is going to be a genuine warmth and a genuine care in here and a genuine care for Jesus. If you and I on a daily basis are increasing our trust and reliance on God, will we do that? Are we doing that? Friends, I think we see in these verses just why Fighting problems in our church is so important. It's because if we leave false teaching to sit there, do you know what happens to the church? It renders the church totally meaningless. If there's false teaching, false teachers, the church is empty. The church is dead. I, for one, don't want that to be the case at London City Presbyterian Church. What do we want in this place? We want a community of people, Christians, who are so focused on the cross, focused on the gospel, produces in each one of us a love, sincere love for each other, but more than that, a sincere love for the one was pierced for us. I mean, isn't that what it's about? Like, isn't that what makes fighting false teaching so important?
is it important? Because it concerns the honor of Christ. Let's pray.